Hello, Crime Clan, and welcome to a new episode of Altitude Crime. And a big welcome back to all my returning listeners. And if this is your first time listening, it's a pleasure to have you. You've got 12 more episodes to go back and binge if you haven't already. I am so excited to have you here listening, and our clan is really starting to grow now. So make sure you follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on, and connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, or on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Okay, everyone, so this episode is lucky number 13, and I'm going to be honest, I'm hitting you with a rough case today. I know in the past couple weeks, we've been covering the murder of 13-year-old Dylan Redwine, and that case is horrendous. But unfortunately for number 13 today, I'm upping the ante with a case that involves the killing of a family so brutal that their house has been deemed the murder house for almost four decades, and the person responsible is still free. Cassandra Rundle was born on October 29, 1947, in West Virginia. It seems she had a pretty quote-unquote normal upbringing. A pretty girl, she was at one point crowned Miss Morgantown. Cassandra would end up marrying her high school sweetheart, Steve Sturm. The two would move to Colorado in the late 1960s, where they had two children, Dietrich and Melanie, together. However, this marriage would eventually end in divorce in 1974. After the divorce, Steve moved to Pueblo, where his place of work was, and then in following years to Ohio. One year later, in 1975, Cassandra met Douglas Peltzer while they were both attending the University of Southern Colorado in Pueblo, now known as Colorado State University Pueblo. She and Douglas got married in 1977. That same year, Cassandra received her bachelor's degree in behavioral science. The following year, they moved to Colorado Springs. They rented a house in the Ivy Wild area of town on Laclede Street. The Ivy Wild neighborhood is located right in between downtown Colorado Springs and the bougie area of the Broadmoor Resort. The homes are a bit small and modest and with small lots. At the time of this case, Ivy Wild Elementary School sat in the heart of the area. The family would live in this house until 1983 when Cassandra and Douglas divorced. He would move out to an area about two miles away. Cassandra, Dietrich, and Melanie moved into an apartment for a short time and then back into the same rental house on Laclede. Cassandra and Douglas's divorce was no nasty proceeding by any means. It seems that the main issue in the relationship was purely financial. Douglas was a tattoo artist and just wasn't bringing in enough money to help support the family. Cassandra was working as a secretary to support her children after the divorce. But Cassandra and Douglas's emotional relationship was still very much intact. Douglas was a fixture at the home many nights. Douglas said at one point that Cassandra was his best friend. It was very clear that Cassandra was a loving mother, 
She was interested in starting to date again, but her children always came first. In 1985, at the time of this case, Cassandra was 38 years old. 12-year-old Dietrich Sturm, Cassandra's son, was very mature for his age. He was enrolled in gifted programs at his school and was very studious. He and his sister, Melanie, had a good relationship. He never picked on her, and Dietrich always tried to do the right thing. Cassandra's 10-year-old daughter, Melanie Sturm, was a person all her own. She often wore bright colors and patterns accompanied by crazy hairstyles. The Canyon Elementary School student was slowly growing into her own personality. If you'd like to hear some more detailed stories about the family from people who knew them, I highly recommend listening to the six-part podcast called Colorado Cold Case, created by the Gazette newspaper. This case is covered in season four, and it gives a pretty intimate look into who Cassandra, Dietrich, and Melanie were. February 13th, 1985 was a pretty normal day for the family. That day, Cassandra and Douglas had gone to eat together at Red Lobster. Ten-year-old Melanie had been at school for a project. The elementary school had hosted a bazaar in which the students were given play money and set up stands to do business with each other. Melanie's Coney Island hot dog stand was such a hit, she ran out of hot dogs. She came home around 8.30 p.m. I'm assuming that Dietrich was also at the bazaar, given that play money was found in his jeans pocket later on. That night, Steve Sturm called and talked to his kids to say hello and touch base. A pretty normal occurrence. Cassandra loved poetry and often wrote when she was younger. In years later, her father would share a poem with the Gazette named Thursday AM. It said, quote, Ten hundred years from now, who will remember us? So always whisper your goodbyes, unquote. What happened in the coming hours would be anything but normal. The following morning on Valentine's Day 1985, Cassandra's most recent ex-husband, Douglas, arrived to deliver a Valentine's gift for her. He had purchased a copy of Credence Clearwater Revival's Willie and the Poor Boys album for Cassandra. He knocked on the door a few times, but received no answer. Concerned, he proceeded to the back door of the house and let himself in. And just a note on this, I have not been able to find if this was common for the back door to be unlocked or if it was unusual. It never really gets addressed in any of the information I found, so that leads me to believe that this was not out of the norm for the family. What Douglas found in the house once he entered was nothing short of grisly. Authorities arrived on the scene after Douglas used a neighbor's phone to alert them to what was now a crime scene on Laclede Street. Now, I tend to not harp on the gore of crime scenes in our episodes too much because I do try to stick to the details of what is pertinent to the case and will come up as we talk about the case later in the episode. But I'm going to take some time to really describe this scene because I really want to impress on you the sheer brutality of what Cassandra, Dietrich, and Melanie went through. Cassandra, Melanie, and Dietrich were all found in their respective bedrooms, with the beds still made. Though the beds were in order, it was clear by the state of the house that there had been a fight. Cassandra had been attacked first with a hockey stick that the killer had found in Dietrich's room. She was then bound with items also found in her room, including pantyhose, an electrical cord, and a tie from a pair of pajamas. 
She was found face down and nude on her bed. She had been strangled with one of the aforementioned items. The killer then went on to show no restraint in violence for the children who were also in the house at the time. The killer then moved on to Melanie. She was found partially dressed in her pajamas on her bedroom floor. It was clear by the state of the room that she had put up a fight with her attacker. Her wrists were raw from trying to wiggle out of her restraints. She had been beaten so badly that her skull had fractured. She was also bound and strangled with a ligature. Dietrich seems to have walked in on or interrupted the murders and became collateral damage. He was not bound or beaten, but evidence shows that he was quickly overpowered by the killer and strangled with a ligature. Before leaving the home, the killer left the bloodied hockey stick in Dietrich's room. They also proceeded to rape both Cassandra and 10-year-old Melanie. Authorities deduced that the murders had happened sometime between 5 and 8 a.m. that Valentine's Day morning. The bodies were still at room temperature when they arrived. There was no sign of forced entry or robbery in the home. These murders sent shockwaves through the community. At the time, there were only about 300,000 people living in Colorado Springs. Most residents were natives or had come from surrounding cities in the state. There was not the large influx of transplants that you see there now. And the community of Ivy Wild was small, literally. The houses are modest and the lots are pretty small, so neighbors sit pretty close to one another. The fact that someone had slipped in and done this without being seen was terrifying to residents. Wilson Bees' reporting for Nine News recalled a statement about the crime that the Colorado Springs Police Department, or CSPD, saying, quote, This crime emotionally cripples not only the family members of the beloved victims, but the family's neighborhood and our entire community, unquote. School children had to be told why their friends Dietrich and Melanie did not show up to school the next day, and therapists were made available to the children. The details of the crime made the front page of the local newspaper, The Gazette, for many days. CSPD called in the Colorado Bureau of Investigations pretty quickly. They also gathered as much as they could from the house, taking around 100 pieces of evidence they thought could shed some light on the murders. They sprayed the entire house with a certain kind of chemical to try to pick up any fingerprints at the scene. They ended up leaving the house as a crime scene for almost a month in an effort to not miss any potential information about the killer. The community wanted to help too. CSPD had a ton of call-ins with any tiny piece of information people had. Sergeant Joe Kenda, of later Homicide Hunter fame, headed up the investigation at the time. His inkling was that the murders were committed by someone Cassandra knew. Unfortunately, there is no Joe Kenda episode on this case, as the murders are still unsolved to this day. Police worked hard to interview neighbors and anyone connected with Cassandra and her kids. They soon found that Cassandra had placed two personal ads in the Colorado Springs Sun, a now-defunct daily newspaper. Cassandra was shy and had a hard time approaching new people, so her friends said this was a fun and easy way for her to meet someone new. 
Cassandra placed her first ad on July 16, 1984, the summer prior to the murders. According to Margaret Bauman's reporting for the AP News, it read, quote, Blonde, green eyes, 5 feet 2 inches, 95 pounds, seeking a rugged individualist. Am a free spirit, independent, well-educated, somewhat shy, sensitive, and enjoy life. Am a one-man woman looking for one good man. Please send photo and short letter, unquote. Cassandra then placed a second, shorter ad just a month later on August 18th. Bauman's reporting said it read, quote, Warm, together, bright, beautiful, and modest lady seeking friendship with a gentleman of quality and character, 30 to 40 years old, unquote. 85 men had replied to Cassandra's ads, and she went on lunch dates with around a dozen of them. She only saw a few of the men a second time. And for those of you unfamiliar with personal ads and how they worked, it's not like Cassandra just published her phone number to the whole wide world. The responders would be prompted to write a letter directly back to the Colorado Springs Sun, and they would deliver them to Cassandra. She then had to field who she went out with. So really, it's not a lot different from online dating right now, where at least there's that initial buffer where the person doesn't have your direct contact information yet. But these ads gave CSPD a huge pool of potential suspects that would be kind of hard to track down. Given the anonymity available in this type of communication, there were a number of these men that CSPD could not solidly identify, which means they also can't rule them in or out as suspects. CSPD ended up having hundreds of interviews with potential witnesses and persons of interest. And it wasn't long before the story hit national news. The media dubbed the killings the Lonely Heart Murders, Lonely Hearts being a common name for the personal ads in the newspapers. And this is not to be confused with the Lonely Hearts killers, Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck, who were serial killers who identified potential victims through Lonely Hearts ads in the late 1940s. Both Cassandra's first husband, Steve, who was then living in Ohio, and Douglas, who found the bodies, were pretty quickly ruled out as suspects. Douglas had thought that Cassandra could have gone to a bar after they saw each other that day and been killed by somebody she met there. CSPD eventually ruled out the leads brought up by the personal ads Cassandra had placed. While this could have opened her up to a potential predator, her friends felt she approached the dating method too safely and that this wasn't exactly possible. The murders continued to rock the community because without a strong suspect, the police could neither confirm nor deny that there was a serial killer out there that was going to wreak havoc in the community. As their leads dried up, on the one-year anniversary of the crime, detectives even asked the family living in the home at the time to vacate the house for the evening. They stayed the night there on the off chance the killer would come back for a second round. At one point, there was a grand jury convened to see if evidence against a suspect was valid enough to charge them, but the grand jury did not rule that the evidence was enough. And due to this still being an ongoing investigation, the name of this suspect and details about their relation to Cassandra and her children have not been released. In later years, Detective Lou Smith would reinvestigate the case to see if he could come up with any new information. 
Smith is most famously known for being involved in the John Benet Ramsey case as a consulting investigator. DNA was really in its infancy at the time of this case, but CSPD did a great job of collecting evidence for future testing. The DNA that has been submitted to national databases has not yielded a match yet, but hopefully will turn up an answer someday. And in case you're wondering, DNA evidence can last a really long time as long as it is stored properly. Anniversary stories in the media popped up for the first few years before fading away altogether. People in the Ivy Wild neighborhood who knew about the crime started to move or pass away. In 1992, a crime in Fayetteville, North Carolina would reinvigorate the case for a short time. In January of that year, 24-year-old Philip Wilkinson walked into a police station and confessed to a triple murder in the area that had happened six months prior. Wilkinson had a history of being a habitual peeping Tom, but his habits eventually escalated to both rape and murder. The night of the incident, the good-looking Wilson met a woman in a bar and went home with her. He knew from the onset he intended to rape her, but the dogs she had as pets in the home scared him off from the prospect. Instead, he prowled the neighborhood until he saw 19-year-old Crystal Hudson through the sliding glass door of her home. She was asleep on the couch. Wilkinson entered the home through the unlocked sliding door and beat, killed, and sexually abused Crystal. He then beat both 11-year-old Larry Hudson Jr. and their mom, 38-year-old Judy Hudson, who were also in the home at the time. He then sexually assaulted Judy. The murders had a lot of similarities to that of Cassandra, Melanie, and Dietrich. The Hudsons had been beaten with a bowling pin Wilkinson had found in the yard. Cassandra and her children had been beaten with a hockey stick found in the house. Both females in the home had been sexually assaulted. And in both cases, the killer showed no restraint in violence on the children. It became even more alarming when it was found that Wilkinson's peeping Tom habit began when he was stationed at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs in 1985. While Wilkinson could be placed in Colorado Springs at the time of the crime, he denied having anything to do with the murders. And CSPD was not sure that he was a fit. They ended up clearing him as a suspect, and they haven't given a very solid reason why to the public. There is some conjecture that he was actually away in Korea at the time of the murders, but that's been disputed. So there's really just not a really solid reason that's been given to the public as of right now. Cassandra's dad thought Wilkinson was involved even up until his death. He even attended the trial in the Fayetteville case. Wilkinson pleaded guilty to the murders of Judy, Crystal, and Larry Jr. and was sentenced to death. From what I can tell, Wilkinson is still on death row. The state of North Carolina has not executed a death row inmate since 2006. If you are interested in hearing more about this case, I recommend listening to the episode of the Colorado Cold Case podcast called A Suspect Emerges. It goes much more in depth to this case and the nuances of the trial. There will be a link to this podcast on AltitudeCrime.com. While CSPD has had suspects in the case, no one has ever been arrested and the murders remain unsolved to this day. They now hope that advances in DNA and other crime scene technology will continue to shed light on the evidence the CSPD collected in 1985. 
It has now been 36 years since Cassandra, Dietrich, and Melanie met their horrific end. Their cremated remains are now laid to rest in a burial vault in Morgantown. Cassandra's mom, dad, and sister are all now deceased. Cassandra's ex-husband, Douglas, now lives in Eugene, Oregon. The house on the Cleed Street has been sold and changed hands many times over the years. It still serves as a rental house, just as it did when Cassandra, Dietrich, and Melanie lived there. The area where they lived was considered a sort of ghetto. These murders only made the area seem worse. The Ivy Wild community still sits in an odd area, overshadowed by the business buildings of downtown to the north and the multi-million dollar Broadmoor Resort Homes just a five-minute drive to the south. A small section of the area has been rehabbed by the conversion of Ivy Wild Elementary School into a trendy brewery and bar atmosphere. But this has not ended the stigma in the area for those who knew about these murders. A neighbor across the street now has a grown child who was teased for living so close to what was deemed the murder house. Younger people or transplants living in the area don't fear for their safety because of these murders. But those who believe in ghosts wouldn't be eager to reside there either. We can only hope that both answers and justice are still on the way for Cassandra, Dietrich, Melanie, and the community of Ivy Wild, and that the murder house will someday be a closed chapter of Colorado Springs history. If you have any information about this case, no matter how small, please call CSPD Cold Case Detectives at 719-444-7000. If you would like to remain anonymous, you can call the Pikes Peak Area Crime Stoppers at 719-634-7867, and you will be eligible to receive a reward. You can also submit a tip online through Crime Stoppers. The link will be listed on AltitudeCrime.com. Okay, everybody, so let's dive into some thoughts on this case. Musing number one. This is the perfect example of how cases get forgotten. Time passes, people move away, people get older and pass away. Then who is there and left to tell the story? Let me tell you, it's people like me who like researching more than their social life. But in all honesty, this is why it is so important to keep these stories alive. Once the story dies, so does the possibility of justice. Musing number two. Just a strange thought here. After her divorce from Douglas, Cassandra and the kids moved into an apartment and then back into the home on Laclede. On the chance that this was a totally random killing, you have to wonder how things may have been different if they had stayed in the apartment instead of moving back to the house. Musing number three. In researching this case, I came across a strange coincidence that I just thought I'd share with you. So strangely enough, one of Cassandra's close high school friends and her two children were also murdered. In that particular case, the husband was convicted of the crime. Musing number four. I cannot imagine how the school children that Dietrich and Melanie knew were able to handle and process this information. I mean, I feel like as a kid that would totally consume you. One of Melanie's friends recalled how she had been so afraid after the murders that she slept with a light on for a year afterwards. Musing number five. 
The details of this case actually spurred a court case that affected how future crimes are reported on. On March 19, 1987, two years after the murders, the Colorado Court of Appeals ruled that autopsy reports were public documents and had to be released to the media. The original suit in this case was filed by the Gazette against the El Paso County Coroner in 1985. The coroner at the time was Dr. David Bowerman, and the Gazette wanted the autopsy reports for articles about the crime, and Bowerman refused to release them. He said he did not release them as they were part of an ongoing investigation. So the suit went back and forth in the courts for quite a while. The appeal court's final rule was that autopsy reports fall under Colorado's Open Records Act, And you could be suspicious of this, that there was something in the autopsy reports that authorities didn't want the media to see. But you have to understand that at the time, a crime like this was pretty unheard of in Colorado Springs and in Colorado in general. So you had authorities that were really wanting to solve this and really wanting to keep tabs on that information. And you had the newspapers that were just clamoring to report on it. Everybody wanted this information and they wanted it for different reasons. Musing number six. Philip Wilkinson is certainly an interesting lead in this case, and the CSPD has gotten some flack for not following up or vetting this lead enough. So let's work through the scenario a little bit here. So Cassandra was only 95 pounds and her children were young. Wilkinson would have been 19 at the time of the murders. So it is totally possible he could have overpowered them and could have committed this crime. But I'm not really convinced at this point that he was involved. Wilkinson walked into a police station and turned himself in for the Fayetteville crimes. He clearly had nothing to lose. So I have a hard time believing that when he was asked about Cassandra, Dietrich, and Melanie's murders, that he would have denied committing them if he was really guilty. He already knew he was going to jail for life or worse, so you would have thought it would have been no harm, no foul. And for somebody who turned themselves in, I just have a hard time pegging that motivation for denying the Colorado murders if he did really commit them. Mifa is more in the camp that CSPD never gave a firm reason why he was eliminated because it would have unveiled someone else they were interested in. Remember, there was that grand jury indictment where they tried to move on evidence for an unnamed suspect. I wonder if they were just trying to keep it under wraps and they couldn't be like, it's not this guy because we're pretty sure it's this guy. Musing number seven. Research for this case also got me into some pretty interesting stats about Colorado Springs Police Department. In 1985, the year that the murders occurred, CSPD had a 92% homicide solve rate. So they were really putting in resources to solve homicides as quickly and as often as possible. As of February 2020, there were 93 unsolved homicides in Colorado Springs. Musing number eight. So where do authorities go from here? There can be some continued DNA testing on the evidence CSPD still has as DNA technology continues to develop. A key piece of evidence for eventual testing is the ligatures used to strangle all three victims. These would actually have a lot of DNA transfer on them, not only from the process of strangulation, but also from the process of tying them in knots. 
Just think about when you tie your shoes. How much do you touch those laces and your fingers are running across the laces and that's all creating DNA transfer? CSPD will need to use all the evidence wisely as not only to not damage DNA that is there with tests, but also because DNA testing runs $500 to $700 per sample. And they don't have an unlimited budget by any means. This is another case that also could possibly be cracked with genetic genealogy, since we do now have DNA in a national database, but we don't have a match. It could be traced through relatives rather than finding that match itself. We can only hope that as we approach the 40th anniversary of this case, that some answers can be found. Thanks so much for listening today, guys. This was a pretty brutal case, but again, it's one that I feel is important to tell. I want to tell as many unsolved cases as possible, and this one ranks up there with one of the most horrendous. Also, I know you guys are kind of asking, there will be another update on the Dylan Redwine trial coming. I'm just waiting for a bit more information to pile up so I can give you a little bit longer of an episode and a little bit longer of an update. Also, I have updated the merch on the website, altitudecrime.com. You'll see a link to Etsy there. Uh, There's now water bottles and tote bags that are eco-friendly, so there's some cool new merch out there. Make sure to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. And don't forget to connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. You can also see all the source material for this episode at altitudecrime.com. Well, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And I will talk to you next Sunday here on Altitude Crime. Episode 13, The Colorado Springs Murder House, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.